Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer for spiritual preparation to make sure we are ready to study the word, which means that uh, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. I'll give you the opportunity to use First John 1 night if, if uh, necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful we can come to you in prayer as we've been studying in uh, Hebrews. It's a tremendous privilege we have, the access that we have, because the Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest, and through him we have access to your throne, and therefore we can come boldly and confidently before your uh, throne of grace on the basis of of his work on the cross and the fact that the um, veil has been torn and the entryway is open. And, Father, we... Uh, bring before you many in this congregation who are facing and dealing with various physical uh, maladies and health problems. We pray that you would uh, strengthen them, that they would be a tremendous witness to those around them, and that uh, as they face those physical trials and tests, that that would be a uh, profitable time for them to grow spiritually and to see your faithfulness in their lives. We pray that as we study your word tonight, we might also be encouraged as we continue to look at Old Testament examples of faith and that we might realize that even though uh, they seem to be great heroes to us because they are their records are inscribed in Scripture, yet they did not have many of the assets that we have, many of the um, uh, spiritual capabilities that we have, and yet nevertheless we can uh, emulate them in trusting you, trusting in your promise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11 is basically a series of illustrations on faith. That is, faith as the application of an individual's trust in relation to specific revelation, specific promise that God gives in Scripture. At the introduction of the chapter, in the first two verses, we read now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so faith and hope are linked together with that which is not 
not perceptible in terms of empiricism. It's not perceptible in terms of our ability to see it, touch it, feel it. There are promises that have yet to be fulfilled, and the trust focuses on the promise that God gives because of the character of God that lies, the, the character that lies behind the promise because of his promise. We know that the, uh, because of his character, we know that his promise will be fulfilled. And so the writer of Hebrews then pulls together the series of illustrations from the Old Testament to show how these Old Testament uh, figures, despite failures, despite their own sin natures, despite times when they did not trust God, there were key times in each of their lives when they focused on the promise of God and trusted God, and there were significant consequences because of their trust in God. And it begins with heroes before the call of Abraham, looking at uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah. And then the major focus is on those key figures in the history of Israel, Abraham, uh, <clears throat> Jacob, Isaac, uh, Joseph, Moses. And then as we have studied these, we come to uh, last time, the last couple of lessons, looking at uh, verses 30 and 31 in reference to the conquest. Now, one of the things that he, the writer has brought out since the since verse 8, when the focus was on Abraham, is the focus on the land promise. Faith always is in an object. It's not faith in faith. It's not just believe in some empty, not un- unexisting, unformed, uh, vague, nebulous idea. Faith always, in scriptural faith, biblical faith, always focuses, focuses on a specific promise in the word of God, a specific revelation, specific principle, a specific uh, proposition that, that it, it focuses on. And so now the, the emphasis from Abraham on is on the land promise. Again and again and again, God had promised to Abraham that this land he would give to his descendants, to Isaac and to Jacob, that promise was given, yet they never saw the promise fulfilled. And to Moses, yet Moses was not allowed to enter into the land. And it wasn't until Joshua led the people into the land at the conquest that's covered in the book of Joshua and as exemplified in the uh, conquest of Jericho and then even the faith of Rahab, who was not uh, not a Jew. She was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. Yet, nevertheless, she trusted in the promise of God, and because she did marry into uh, Israel, and she in fact was in the line of of Christ. She is an ancestor to the Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity. That she is included in here as an example of those who believe, who trust in the Lord, and the Lord gives them victory. And then when we come to verse 32 now, there is a shift in pace. It's sped up a little bit in verses 30 and 31, but now we really move into high gear because the writer realizes that he's running out of time. He's running out of, uh, running out of space. But he wants to make it clear to his reader, and the Holy Spirit wants to make it clear to us, that he hasn't run out of examples, that there are dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of more examples that he could use uh, from the Old Testament, from the history of Israel to illustrate 
the significance of faith in the life of believers. Now, remember, these Old Testament believers don't have the same spiritual life that you and I do. They're not uh, indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. They're not filled with God the, by God the Holy Spirit. They do not have a completed canon of Scripture as we do, and yet they were able to uh, achieve great things in their spiritual life by simply trusting God. It's a, these are all illustrations of what we call the faith rest drill. Faith meaning that active belief on our part. Rest meaning we rest and we trust in God to supply uh, the the victory and to take care of the challenge, the problem, whatever it might be, on the basis of His Word, and then uh, we learn that the drill aspect means this is to be a a regular disciplined procedure in our life. So the writer begins here by saying, "What more shall I say?" And the way this is structured, it's it's I could say a lot more, but I don't have time. He goes on to say, for the time would fail me. There's not time to go into all of the details related to uh, the evidence that I could marshal. I could talk about Gideon and Barak, uh, Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel, and the prophets. And he goes on to say in verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. So um, this is a great summary passage for what he has been teaching up to this point, and he'll go on to give some more examples even in verses uh, 35 uh, down through the end of the uh, down through the end of the chapter in verse 40, but we'll stop tonight. We're going to focus on verse 32, and I don't think we'll get much beyond beyond that because I want to give a little bit of uh, background on each of these individuals that he mentions. Remember, he is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a group of uh, former Jewish priests who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They're in a circumstance because of pressure, because of uh, uh, hostility to their uh, faith in Jesus as a Messiah, that they're under some level of persecution, and yet because they're not seeing any real change, uh, it doesn't seem like Jesus is going to come back and establish the kingdom immediately. Whatever the circumstance was, they are about to just give up and go back into Judaism. And yet the writer of Hebrews is challenging them to hang tough, to persevere, to endure, just as these Old Testament heroes did, and many of them never saw the promise fulfilled. But now, of course, with Joshua, Rahab, and these, these are um, individuals who did see the promise fulfilled. And so he's writing to this group of former uh, Jewish priests, and they're very familiar with the Old Testament. He doesn't need to go into a lot of detail with them on these particular individuals and and what took place in their in their in their lives and what was revealed to them in Scripture. Now, I always remember when I think about uh, the knowledge that uh, these uh, priests would have had. I always think of the illustration that uh, that Arnold Fruchtenbaum uh, frequently tells uh, back in the Middle Ages when the 
Jewish community was training up men who would be uh, scribes whose responsibility was to make copies of the Torah, make copies of the Old Testament scriptures that would then be preserved and and would be the basis of the teaching in the Jewish community, that these were men who came from certain families and they were identified very early because of their intelligence, because of their ability to uh, to remember things and because of their grasp. And so they were then trained that so that by the time uh, they were bar mitzvahed, they would be able to recite the entire uh, Torah without a mistake from uh, from memory. And then by the time they were 18 or 19 years of age, they would have to be able to recite the entire Old Testament from memory. And they would be given a test where they would be given a uh, taken a, 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 te- a, a, a Old Testament scripture and a nail would be driven from the top down. Somebody would hammer a nail into the text and they would <clears throat> then be asked, what word would that nail intersect on page 457? And because they had virtually a photographic memory of the text, they would be able to tell exactly where, what word that nail would have uh, intersected. They would know the first word and the last word on every page of the Bible. And that's because they didn't have a Xerox machine. That's how they would make sure that they were accurate in their uh, in their transcribing. They would know the, what the first word, the middle word. They would often know all of the uh, the first words of every line, the last word of every line, so that they could then check to make sure that nothing had been had been left out. So there's the knowledge of the scripture. When you think about that, and you think about how how sometimes I feel like it's uh, <clears throat> pulling teeth to get people to memorize 10 verses. Um, sometimes to get young men who want to go in the pastorate to memorize 10 verses. And yet you have this emphasis on training uh, historically in the Jewish community because they understood this was, this was the word of God and that you did not violate it. And so it was held in such high esteem, even though there were, they may not have really understood what it said, they knew it was important. We have men today that often understand what it means, but they they don't have it uh, have it memorized. And scripture memorization is extremely important because you never know what circumstances or situations you might be in when you need to claim a promise. And we've all had that experience, especially when we were new believers, where we go, "Oh, I know that's in the Bible somewhere. Isn't there a promise saying something like?" And then we, we just can't come up with it. We need to, as the psalmist says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So we need to know these stories. But not everybody here has uh, listened to the series I did on Judges. And if you've never listened to that series, I would encourage you to do that. I think that is one of the most significant series I've ever taught because it deals with the how Israel went from a, uh, a righteous, believing community that was victorious immediately after the conquest to a fragmented, relativistic, pagan culture by the end of the book of Judges, and you couldn't tell uh, 
the, the, you couldn't tell the Jews apart from the Canaanites. They were so pagan. In fact, they were worse in many cases than the Canaanites because they had succumbed to moral relativism and rejected the Lord. It begins with, with gr- the great stories of the conquest as each tribe began with the mopping up operation in their particular areas of tribal allotment. And then as various uh, foreign powers would come in to oppress them because of uh, the subsequent generations would be disobedient, then God would raise up a deliverer who was a combination of a, of a, of a judge, uh, a military leader, and a, in some cases a prophet, a spiritual leader. So you begin with Othniel at the beginning, of whom nothing negative is said, and end with Samson, of whom hardly anything positive is said. And when Samson dies, the people are still under the oppression of the Philistines. He is unsuccessful in throwing off uh, the yoke of the Philistines. So uh, the key verse in the book of Judges is, There was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What a tremendous statement that would also uh, represent our own time and our own culture. People are into moral relativism. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and they don't recognize any higher authority than whatever I feel like I want to do right now. So Judges is a, is a uh, good study if you want to go back and, uh, and listen to that. And that also reminds me that recently uh, when we had the conference last month, the Chafer Conference on Creation, and then I wrapped things up in, um, in a summary lesson on Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 because many people were asking questions of me about where the fall of Satan occurred in the creation of the angels in light of creation. And I studied that, and somebody came up to me the other day and said, people wouldn't be asking you those questions if they'd listened to those first 12 lessons in Genesis. And uh, this individual said that they had begun listening to me about the time I taught that in, when I was in Connecticut. And so they, they understood what the situation was and what the, what the issues were in creation and evolution. But a lot of people uh, who have come along and become part of the church since then or started listening to the ministry haven't done that. And so that's, a, that's an important uh, section of that Genesis study to to go back and review. It's about 12 or 15 lessons, maybe maybe as many as 20, but, but going through the entire first chapter uh, or two in, uh, in Genesis. Well, here we are in Hebrews, and the writer says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of, and then he lists three pairs of heroes, Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel, and the prophets. Now here's a test. Pop quiz. See who's alert tonight. Anybody notice anything unusual about that list? Put everybody on the spot. Anybody notice anything about uh, unusual about that list? Hmm? Well, you uh, not not really contrast, but you do have three groups. But notice what? What'd you say? Did you say they're out of order? So what you say? That's right. Gideon comes after Barak. Samson comes after Jephthah. And David comes after Samuel. So you have three pairs. And in each pair, 
their chronological order is reversed. And there are a lot of different explanations for that. And probably the most, um, the, 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 the one that makes the most sense to me is that the writer of Hebrews is following the order of, um, uh, that is given in 1 Samuel 12, 11. When Samuel is giving his farewell speech to the people of Israel, he said, Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, that was the other name for, for Gideon, uh, Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on, on every side. So there is at least the reversal of order there of Jeroboam and Barak although uh, he gets Jephthah and Samuel right. In each of these pairs, uh, one would think that the most known story would be the first one. Gideon is more well-known than Barak. Uh, Samson's more well-known than Jephthah. And David is more well-known than, than Samuel. And so that's the only way I can, uh, I can think that the writer would switch it around like that is, is in that particular order. But he speaks of these uh, six individuals because of the place that they hold in the uh, growth and development of the nation from the conquest to its final and fullest realization under David and its greatest expansion uh, of the kingdom, the greatest uh, amount of land that they had under control, under the control of, uh, of Israel was during the reign of David and, and, uh, and Solomon. And so it, it goes from the conquest up to its greatest expansion in the land. And what lies behind uh, all of these promises going back to the, uh, Hebrews 11.8 is that promise to Abraham, the promise to give his descendants the land. And so as we get into this, we're faced with uh, asking the question, what do all of these have in common, and they have three things in common. First of all, they each faced overwhelming odds. In, in human terms, there was no way in which any of these individuals could conquer and militarily defeat their opponents. They were outmanned and they were outgunned. They, they, were, uh, they were vastly outnumbered by professional troops, and these professional troops usually had superior technology than what the uh, Israelites had. And so uh, that was the first thing. They faced overwhelming odds. The second thing they faced is that each of these leaders had direct orders from the Lord to do what they did. They were given a divine commission to take and to raise an army of Israelites to deliver the Israelites from the oppressor. So they each had a direct order from the Lord which included a promise from the Lord to give them victory. And then the third thing is they all understood the, in a broad sense that the land had been promised to them by God and that therefore they had a divine right to the land and that the land uh, that God had promised to, to uh, Abraham was theirs. And so they trusted the Lord to give them victory in the battle. Now, we're in a different kind of battle in the church age. We are not in a battle over territory. We're in a battle for the mind. We're in a battle over in spiritual warfare in terms of our own thinking. 
and and being challenged by various tests and various adversities. And so we claim many promises, and some of these Old Testament promises we can apply to the battles that we face. And I just want to run through three or four of these promises. 2 Corinthians 20, verse 15, is at the time of Jehoshaphat, when he is uh, going to war against the uh, Edomites, and... The uh, command to him is, listen, all of, you, uh, all of you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. And that's the problem we always have is that when we look at the circumstances, we get our eyes on the details, we get our eyes on the uh, the. Uh, other persons or the situations overwhelming uh, negative factors, and then we minimize what we have on our side. God plus one is always a majority, and we forget that we ha- if we have God on our side, it really doesn't matter uh, what else we're facing in life. And that was the main promise that undergirds each of these is that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is not ours. It's the Lord's. This is what David uh, recognized when he went up against Goliath. Uh, we, verse, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 47, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. In fact, sometimes, many times, the, the uh, nation that has the greatest technology and training uh, does, has the worst performance because of God's plan to uh, either d- discipline them through defeat or to protect whoever is being uh, they're, they're aggressing against. And so uh, it is not, uh, the ultimate issue is not technology. It's never empiricism. We always want to go to empiricism. And the same thing applies to, to our nation today. The problem in this nation is not a problem of politics. The problem in this nation is not a problem of taxation. The problem in this country is not a problem of Islamic terrorism. Those are all just circumstantial details. The problem in this country is that people have turned their back on the truth of the Word of God. And until that is resolved, these other things are continuously going to crop up as part of God's discipline on the nation, it's, it's analogous to what God had promised Israel and the curses related to uh, their breaking the covenant and the five cycles of discipline. Now, we don't go through those same five cycles because that's part of God's covenant to Israel in the Old Testament, but there are, there are similarities and there are parallels that when a people violates the created order of, of, of God's world, when they violate those creation ordinances and the divine institutions, those establishment principles that we've gone through, recognizing individual responsibility, which includes individual labor. Number two is marriage, number three, which is between a man and a woman and must be preserved that way. And even when you thinly disguise what you're doing as as uh, some sort of civil union, a civil union by any other name is a marriage because uh, you're granting, vir- you're calling it something else, but you're giving all of the legal qualifi- all the legal attributes to a 
a civil union that you would a marriage. And when you start messing with those divine institutions and the family and the breakdown in the family because of carnality and arrogance and the violence that occurs in families and the high divorce rate and fragmentation in families, all of this leads to a fragmentation within the culture and the fragmentation of the nation, the polarization of society, and we see our society becoming more and more polarized and greater and greater levels of civil discord. And for at least the last 10 years, we've heard people uh, talk more and more about why there just isn't any respect anymore uh, when you get pe- uh, crowds of people out or you get different groups talking about and disagreeing about political issues. And that's because the polar- polarization that occurs from the totally conflicting worldviews is so great that you can't compromise these things anymore. Back when we had a homogenous society where nearly everybody operated on some sort of loose Judeo-Christian set of values, people could find something to agree on. They could find some sort of of, of common ground where they could agree. But when you have part of the culture that is totally committed to atheism, to secularism, to uh, moral relativism, and what that means is that whatever is in the past has no value for today. If we're committed to evolution, then what? Then we're always getting better and better and better, so why go back to what the founding fathers wanted to do in the original documents? In fact, uh, as one congressman said recently, we don't pay any attention to the uh, Constitution. We just make it up as we go along. Why? Because it, in their thinking, what was done 200 years ago isn't relevant because in a, in a evolutionary uh, world where everything is governed by chance, what happened in the past or history isn't relevant to the present at all. What, the only thing that matters today is what we want to do today. That's the same problem you had in Israel during the period of the judges that led to the complete fragmentation, polarization of the nation, led to, and they also had some horrible civil wars uh, in Israel between the tribes uh, during that particular time. And so we, we had the same problem they did. It wasn't a problem of technology, it wasn't a problem of politics, it wasn't a problem of economic theory. It's a problem of a failure to submit to the authority of God and a failure to trust in his word. And so once that happens and the people have destroyed themselves spiritually, then all of these other consequences are naturally going to, uh, naturally going to fall out. So the only real solution isn't a political solution or an economic solution or any other field. The real solution is a spiritual solution. And until that is put in place, everything else is just a, a band-aid. Everything else is just a temporary fix to get us through until the next uh, crisis occurs. And it's only until we have some major crisis where people have to really focus on what's truly important and what has real value that perhaps we may see people uh, turn back to the Lord. But I'm afraid that um, if if life is any it has any consistency, and what we've seen in our personal lives is we know that 
We know we ought to get right with the Lord, and we don't get right with the Lord until he really uh, makes it so miserable and painful sometimes that then we're finally forced to uh, submit to him. So we have to recognize that we don't put our hope in man. We don't put our hope in political part. That doesn't mean we don't get involved. I think Darby was very wrong when he taught... Um, the early Plymouth brethren, that it was a sin to be involved in secular things, that it was a sin to even vote. I think that that's part of our responsibility as a citizen, but it's it's not the, the, the real solution. Uh, the Tea Parties are doing a good thing. There's other people who are doing good things, but ultimately those are just working on temporary uh, fixes, even though they're important. They're still not the real solution, so we dare not put our ultimate hope there. The battle is the Lord's, not ours. Uh, Psalm 44, 6 and 7 is another promise. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. The battle is the Lord's again. Zechariah 4, 6. Uh, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Ultimate, the ultimate battle in this world we must recognize as believers is in the angelic conflict, and our real power is uh, comes from the Word of God, from doctrine, from God the Holy Spirit. And then Second uh, Chronicles 14.11, at the time of Asa, Asa cried out to the Lord his God. This is a great prayer. Uh, we have people, you know, we often go and we talk about prayer. We go to prayers in the New Testament. We go to... Uh, the Lord's Prayer. This is a fabulous prayer. Lord, it's nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Listen to that line of reasoning. He's appealing to the omnipotence of God and says, Lord, it's nothing for you to provide uh, a lot or a little. It's the same to you because of your your power. Help us, O Lord. There's the plea. Help us, O Lord our God, For we rest in you. That's his rationale. God, we're trusting you and you alone. Because we're resting in you, we're calling upon you to supply uh, supply our need, and in this case, to give us the victory. Oh, Lord our God, we rest in you, and in your name we go against this multitude. Oh, Oh, Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against us. No. Against you. Notice this is, this is not a self-absorbed, man-centered, God, we need you to solve my problems. That Lord, this is your problem. And so putting it completely, uh, in the Lord's hands. And so this is how they, uh, they, they operated. Now, I want to give you a couple of maps and orient you as we get into Judges, but let's just turn back. We're not going to be able to go through uh, all of these tonight, as I'm sure you already figured out. But I will take them in chronological order and just focus on the high, high points. There, If you have questions and want to get into these in more detail, then, again, I encourage you to go back and listen to the uh, more detailed studies in, uh, in the book of Judges. The first one we'll look at is actually the second one mentioned, and that's uh, Barak. Uh, in Hebrew, the accent's always on the second syllable, and so just like the prime minister of, of uh, former prime minister of Israel was Ehud Barak, that is how you pronounce uh, the name here. 
And, in fact, we have both of his names present in this particular uh, episode. In uh, Judges chapter 4, it's where we're told the incident of Deborah the judge and Barak the general. So we're going to look at these um, six men that are mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11. We have Gideon, who's the reluctant general in Judges 7. Uh, Barak, who's the weak general in Judges 4 and 5. Then uh, Samson, who's the unsuccessful deliverer in Judges 16. He's the only one who doesn't raise an army. Then we have Jephthah, who is the rash general in Judges 11. Uh, and then we get out of Judges and we'll go to Samuel for David, who is the faith-focused warrior king. And he's, his life is covered in 1 Samuel 17 through the end of 2 Samuel. And then uh, Samuel, who is the prophet, priest, and the last judge, covered. his life is covered basically in 1 Samuel 1 through 17. So in Judges chapter 4, this is actually the, the third judge. The first judge is Othniel, the second judge is Ehud. The third name listed is Shamgar in verse 31, but Shamgar is not called a judge. He just delivers them, but he's not actually mentioned as a, as a judge. And if you want the details on Shamgar, I encourage you to go listen to the study. It's a little bit technical. But Shamgar wasn't even Jewish. His name is not a Jewish name. It's more of a Hurrian name or possibly uh, a Hittite name. And he, there's an indication that he is part of a mercenary corps called the Sons of Anat, who were a group of warriors who were, were formed an elite guard to the Pharaoh. And at this particular time, Egypt was, uh, of course, uh, had control of the Sinai, and the Philistines down in the area of Gath were just on the edge of the border with, with Egypt. And so you have uh, Shamgar kills 600 Philistines with an ox goat, and this is going to relieve some of the military pressure on Israel. And we wonder why Shamgar is there. What in the world is this guy doing here? Why, when you go from Ehud to Deborah, you have this one verse talking about Shamgar? And I believe that the reason Shamgar is mentioned is that uh, Israel was in such a state of spiritual apostasy after the uh, uh, deliverance of Ehud and their initial deliverance, and then they uh, uh, had rest for 80 years, and then they're back in apostasy again, going through that cycle that we see in the book of Judges, that there wasn't a, a, a Jewish leader to be found. And so in order to relieve the military pressure against them, God has to use a pagan warrior from uh, uh, outside of Israel. And this forms a little backdrop for understanding what happens in the fourth chapter because God raises up Deborah because you've got a culture that the males have wimped out. And that's indicated by Barak. And so God uh, raises up uh, Deborah as a prophetess and as a judge. And this is a, an exception when we get into issues related to uh, women teaching and being pastors in the New Testament, you often have people go back and say, well, look at Deborah. Now, Deborah wasn't equivalent to a pastor or a teacher. She has a different role 
She is a prophetess, and one reason she's raised up is because there aren't, there's a vacuum of leadership in this paganized uh, Israel. And when she calls for Barak to come and lead the forces uh, against, the, uh, against uh, Sisera, and Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera is his commanding general over his chariot corps, then Barak comes along, and his response, he doesn't trust the Lord. He says, well, if you go with me, Deborah, then I'll go. But if you won't come with me, I won't go. And because of that, and we know this is a wrong attitude because there is immediately the pronouncement of a judgment against him. Because he is not willing to trust the Lord for the victory, he's not going to... Uh, get the glory for the victory. In fact, the glory is going to go to a woman. The two heroes in the passage are the are Deborah and uh, Jael. The men are spiritual failures, and this is one thing that happens in paganism. As a culture becomes paganized, there's a role reversal between men and women, and the women become masculinized, and the and the men become feminized, and that's seen in our culture, uh, our culture as well. But despite the fact that he's a wimp and despite the fact that he doesn't start off well, Barak does step to the plate and he does trust the Lord and he does win the battle and defeat the, um, the chariot. So he's facing an enemy in the valley um, of, of Jezreel, an area that we're, we're familiar with. Now, here's a map to orient us, because as we talk about Barak and Gideon, especially in these first two uh, two examples, uh, they both are operating up in the north in the area of Galilee. And this map in particular has shaded in the tribal allotments according to the book of Joshua. And the area of, of uh, that we're talking about for the uh, Esdralon Valley is this uh, line of demarcation here along the uh, northern border of the tribe of, of Manasseh or Menasheh. Notice how much tri- tribal land uh, Manasseh has, uh, part of the tribe on the west side of the Jordan and part on the east side of the Jordan. And so this whole area here running from the where you have this little bump along the coast, which is where modern Haifa is located, from there, running to the southeast, you have the Kishon River, which today just looks like a sort of little bitty creek. Bray's Bio is, looks like it has more water in it than the Kishon River. Uh, but that's because all of this water is bled off now into irrigation in the valley. This is the breadbasket of Israel in the uh, Esdralon Valley or the Valley of Jezreel. And so this is the area where both of these episodes happen. Uh, Mount Tabor is right here uh, on the uh, northeast side of the valley, and just to its right, if you're looking at it from the west, is Mount Mora, which is where the, the battle with uh, Gideon is going to take place. And this is the area, this is Jezreel, which is where uh, we, we studied about how uh, Jezebel met, met her uh, death there, Megiddo, where... Um, a couple of the uh, kings of uh, the northern kingdom king uh, held up and died in Megiddo. And so this is a very uh, prominent area. Again, here is a picture uh, taken from Mount Carmel looking across 
to the uh, from the uh, sort of the west to the east, looking across the valley, the Esdralon Valley, and you have you can just see a little bit of it uh, right over here, Mount Tabor, this little bump here. It's a very unusual shaped hill, and then just to the right of it over here is Mora. Just below it down here is Herod Springs, which is where the episode with Gideon uh, takes place. And then over here is Mount Gilboa, which is where Saul uh, is defeated by the Philistines and where he takes his life. And then down here in the foreground is the, the Valley of Jezreel. And this little bitty darker green area that you see right here, that is the Kishon River. So it doesn't seem to be very much today, but it plays a, a key role within the the whole episode of this uh, this uh, this battle. Now here is a another picture uh, looking across the Jezreel Valley with the hill of Mora uh, in the background. So we'll look at that a little more in just a minute. So what happens is that they're facing uh, Jabin, who is a Canaanite king. And he is from the uh, uh, village, the town, the city of Hatzor, which is located up by the Sea of Galilee. And he has uh, gained control over the northern part of, back up here, Hatzor. Hatzor is located up here. So he's gained control of all of this northern area of Israel. And he is... um, uh, taking excessive tribute from them and oppressing them, and this has gone on uh, for uh, several years, and he is more military advanced than they are. He has 900 chariots of iron, and the, uh, for 20 years he's been oppressing the Israelites, and they do not have equivalent technology, so they can't protect themselves. And so now God has raised up Deborah, who is uh, the judge, and she is also a, a prophetess, and she uh, calls upon Barak to lead the forces against uh, uh, against uh, Sisera. But he he doesn't have any faith at the beginning. He's he's not any different. What we see is a deterioration and degradation of the faith in each one of these leaders as you go through Judges. Uh, he, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't have any confidence. And so she rebukes him. And in verse 9, she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey that you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And this shows that there is a failure on his part. And so the glory for the victory will go to someone else. And so Barak sends out a call, and he raises troops. Let me put that map up there again from, Zeb, from the tribe of Zebulun here, from the tribe of Naphtali here, uh, the yellow, uh, and to come down to uh, Kadesh. And he raises 10,000 men under his command, and uh, Deborah goes with him. And then we're told, uh, as a sort of an aside, that Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites, so they had thrown in their lot with the Israelites, and they pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Za'anim, which is beside uh, Kedesh. Now, that's not located. Uh, that's on the map here. Up, one Kedesh is up here in, uh, let me get the point of there, Kedesh up here in uh, the region of Naphtali in the northern part of uh, 
of Galilee. Verse 12 says, They reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone to Mount Tabor. So he's down here pulling his troops together here at Mount Tabor. And Sisera then gathers all of his uh, chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people were with him from Harsheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. So that is, uh, covers this area of the uh, Jezreel Valley along, along here. And they are prepared for battle. Verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, get up. This is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. So he has a specific promise from God and that the Lord has delivered them. And she goes on to say, is not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak goes down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following and the Lord routs Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, in this account of the episode, we don't see another thing that happens. But in uh, the next chapter, which is the Song of Deborah, where she uh, uh, where she uh, uh, sings this victory song over the defeat of the of the Canaanites, she indicates that it's the torrent of Kishon. So there is a flood that occurs that God uses to uh, panic and to defeat uh, the Canaanites. And so that is a way in which God uses uh, meteorology to uh, wipe out the, the chariots. It's hard to drive those chariots through deep mud. They just sort of bog down and you get trapped and then you're overwhelmed. When he had 900 men with chariots with iron wheels, he could outmaneuver the infantry of the Jews, but now he is trapped in the mud and can't do anything. And so uh, he has to flee. So we're told all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Verse 16, no one was left, but Sisera uh, flees on foot to Jael, the wife of Eber the Kenite. Again, we have reference to this group of Kenites. And... um, and she, though, is oriented to the God of Israel as opposed to most of the Kenites who are in league with Jabin. And so she's very polite to him and invites him into the tent. Um, and he turns aside. She says she's going to hide him. She covers him up uh, with a blanket and she feeds him. And so then he relaxes and he takes a nap. And while he is sleeping, uh, Jael comes in, and this is the first example of anybody really getting nailed in history. And she took a tent peg, which was a very large, this isn't like a small nail, this is like a railroad spike, and she took that and she came up and snuck up on him and drove the peg into his temple so that it goes all the way through his skull and into the ground. And she just uh, pegs him. Right there, and so she gets the glory, and the song of victory is all about um, all about her. And in verse 26 of the next chapter, uh, we read Deborah saying, "She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. Don't you love it? The Holy Spirit just so graphic here." Of course, there are too many people today who just think, oh, isn't that terrible? But this, the terrible thing is the sin, and the terrible thing is the oppression. 
and this is their deliverance so that they can have freedom. Now, that's the story of Barak. So where he's valuable is he trusts God, he engages the enemy, God gives him the victory. The next account is of, is a, is of, of um, Gideon. And as I said, I'm just hitting the high points. The story of Gideon is another great episode. Let's look at a couple of pictures here so we see what it's like. Here's the Jezreel Valley. The hill of Mora in the background is where the Midianite and Amalekite uh, troops are camped. And then it's off to the right that you have the spring of Herod. And this is where the Israelites are going to come. Now, this picture that you see on the screen is a full-color picture that was taken uh, probably about uh, nine or ten years ago. And then we're going to flash back a hundred years, and this is what uh, the area looked like a uh, hundred years ago. So it gives you a little bit of an idea, because I would imagine, except for the car and the concrete road, it hadn't uh, changed a whole lot in, in two or three thousand years. It was just pretty, uh, it was just farmland. So this is the exact same area. Let me show you again the uh, contrast here. And then this is an aerial shot where we have um, Ain Herod here. This is a, uh, uh, uh Israeli village that is built around the spring of Herod. And then over here is uh, uh, Gilboa. And so you're looking at the uh, area of the uh, Esdralon Valley there, the Jezreel Valley. Again, this is a shot of Ain Herod, where the spring of Herod is located. They have a swimming pool here, spring-fed swimming pool, and it's a very attractive area, and they have a village that's built around there. But this is what it looked like a 100 years ago, and there was a lot of water there. See, today so much water has been bled off into uh, irrigation that there's not that much water coming uh, coming out of the spring. But this picture from 100 years ago shows that there's a lot of water there. And again, here's a close-up aerial. This cave that you see located here is the uh, where the, the water for the spring uh, comes out. And you see most of this area here has no water. It's a walkway. But... Uh, 100 years ago, it was all uh, filled with water. So at the time of Gideon, there was a, a good bit of water there for the uh, troops that he's bringing that area. He's got about uh, uh, 10,000 uh, uh, 10, troops that he brings for uh, water, so they have to evaluate uh, how they're going to handle it. So just a couple of more pictures, and there's the Kishon River uh, as it existed a hundred years ago. See, it's not just that little bitty thin uh, line that we see today, but it was a tremendous amount of water was in the Kishon. And so this is the, the river that flooded, that wiped out the uh, chariots of, uh, of Sisera. Okay, now in chapter 7 of Judges, Gideon has already been commissioned to be the deliverer uh, of Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. And he gathers uh, 32,000 troops. Now, the, they have 32,000 troops, and the Midianites have them outnumbered about four or five to one. They have about 125,000 uh, or so. And the so the Israelites are well outnumbered. You would think, well, they're outnumbered about four to one. 
So that's that's not bad. God can still work and survive and uh, give them victory. But God says, now we've got way too many people. And so he first first way he weeds out troops is the Lord said to Gideon that there's way too many people. Um, we need to see if they're really committed to battle. And so whoever is fearful and afraid. Now, I want you to show the comparison there between each of the, the, the promises we had earlier talking about don't fear because the battle is the Lord's. And so those who are fearful, they need to go home. So uh, 22,000 people went home. At least they were honest. That's a, that's a good crowd. 10,000 remain. But the Lord said, no, 10,000, still way too many. So we will... Uh, we need to weed them out again. So the next uh, procedure, the next test, was to come to Ain Herod, the spring of Herod there. And whoever just lapped water up with their hand like a dog and kept their eyes ahead, focused, ready to go into battle, those were the ones you wanted. But people who, the men who got down on their hands and knees and uh, took too much water, well, those weren't ready for combat, so send them home. And so now Gideon was left with 300, and the Lord said, well, that's just about right. And so the Lord said, I'll deliver you. The promise is given in verse 7. I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. And so after everyone left, the people took their provisions. They had trumpets, and they uh, made camp uh, just above the camp of the Midianites in the valley. But that night, as the Lord, uh, the Lord instructed Gideon to take someone and go in and do a little recon mission, and the Lord said, notice in verse 10, but if you are afraid to go down, uh, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So God understands the, that we are afraid at times, and so he reinforces uh, his will and his command so that we're strengthened and encouraged. And so what happens is Gideon goes down, they overhear these two soldiers talking, and one of them is talking about, um, talking about this dream he has, and he says that he dreamed that there was a, a, a loaf of barley bread that tumbled into the camp, and it came to a tent and it knocked the tent over, and the tent collapsed. And then his friend turns to him and says, oh, I understand that dream. So obviously the Holy Spirit's at work in the background, though we're not told about it, and said that is uh, that represents the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, who is going to deliver uh, Israel from Midian uh, and wipe out the whole camp. So the only way you could get that is if there had been some sort of divine revelation. And when Gideon overheard that, he realized that he was going to have victory, had confidence in the Lord, and he went back, divided his 300 men into three companies of 100 each, and each man had a trumpet. They had an empty clay pitcher and a torch that was inside the pitcher so that its light is dimmed. What they are going to do, normally you would have one man with a trumpet and one man with a light for every 50 men. And or a hundred men, something like that. And so what they're going to do is surround the camp, and at a signal they will blow the trumpets, and then they will break the clay pots, and all these 300 lights will appear, which will make it seem as if there are many more uh, enemies, enemy men in the in the hills, and they will uh, the the Midianites just panic, 
And so the, the, um, the, the Israelites don't have to attack. Gideon's men don't need to attack. The Midianites just panic. Great example of psychological warfare and the use of deception. And they panic, and they just, as they're charging every which way in the camp, they're mistaking one another for the enemy, and they begin to uh, kill one another, and then they finally flee, and they're pursued down across the Jordan, and their leaders are captured, and their leaders are killed. And so Gideon, again, provides a tremendous uh, victory because he trusts the Lord. Now, did he fail? Oh, boy, did Gideon fail many times leading up to it. He didn't want to do this. He didn't want to trust the Lord. He kept asking what he thought was impossible things of God. Lay out the fleece, put dew on it. I'll lay the fleece, fleece out tomorrow. I won't put dew on it. Uh, whatever, he's trying to avoid what God wants him to do. But finally, he understood and he trusted God. He's made different from you and you and me. We don't want to trust God sometimes because it's, it's just is beyond our understanding. But he led the people in victory. And then afterward, of course, he caved into arrogance and led him into idolatry. But he makes it into the list in Hebrews 11 because at a key point, he trusted God and saw God deliver the people, let God use him. And the same thing is true for us. We need to recognize that, that we're not any different from all of these Men listed here, they had great spiritual failures, but they had great spiritual successes at key times because they were willing to trust God and let him use them, and we can do the same thing. So we'll come back next time and look at the next uh, the next pair, which is uh, Jephthah and Samson, and they're really a lot of fun. They just, they just don't, they just get more and more corrupt. It's just, it's it's better than any soap opera you could ever watch. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, be reminded of these episodes and the way you work because you're the same God today that delivered them then and you can deliver us from the problems that we face and you can give us strength and confidence because we know that the battle is yours. It's not ours and we need to learn to trust and rest in your provision and to know the word so that we understand the right methodology, that we can rest in your promise, relax in your provision, and watch you deliver us. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with everything we're studying here. In Christ's name, amen.